Hello, everyone. This is Celia Guampa. I'm a Senior Policy Fellow at the Migration Policy Institute. I'd like to welcome everyone to the call on Uneven Landscape, the Differing State Approaches to English Learner Policies under ESSA, or the Every Student Succeeds Act. Thank you all for being here. I see that there are a number of participants, and we're eager to share this information with you, and we're also eager to hear your questions. Um, a few logistics regarding the questions and other things. Uh, first of all, the audio and slides from the webinar will be available on our website, which you see there on the slide after this presentation. If you have any problems accessing this webinar, please call us or contact us. Actually, contact us by email, events at migrationpolicy.org. Then you can also call the number on the screen. Um, we have, we'll have a Q&A session. And we'd like for you to use the Q&A chat function on the right of the screen throughout the webinar to write your questions down. So you don't need to wait till the end. As questions come up, please write them down and we'll be collecting them and we'll be ready to answer them as we go. Um, also, you can send an email to um, events at migrationpolicy.org with your question, or you can tweet your questions to Migration Policy hashtag MPI discuss. We'd love to get them that way also. Uh, I have two uh, very experienced presenters with me today. Julie Sugarman, who is a senior policy analyst for pre-K-12 education here at the Migration Policy Institute, and Kim Sykes, who is um, director of education policy at the New York Immigration Coalition. Uh, both of them have, will have the opportunity to present in a little while and both of them have um, their own perspective on this um, collection of data from the many states that we have before you today. I'd like to also um, point out that this is um, going to be available in a, in a while. I'll give you the citation of where, where you can go to find this publication. But right now, let me tell you a little bit about the National Center on Immigrant Integration Policy, which is where this report comes from at MPI. MPI hosts um, and produces a broad scope of work in migration policy and migration practice. This work is out of the, the Center on Immigrant Integration Policy, where the primary areas of work we have are in education and training, language access, and governance of integration policy. And within education, we focus on the full scope, starting with early childhood education, uh, delving into K-16, and also looking at adult education and workforce development. So this work captures um, a great deal of the scope of our work. Um, it also um, focuses on policy, which here at the center um, is an important aspect of our work. As we focus on practice, we always have an eye toward what the policy is and how it's going to benefit immigrant and English learner children. So today's release is the patchy landscape of state English learner policies under ESSA. If you look on the slide that's before you right now, you can see where you can click to go to the compendium, um, which is what we fondly call it within MPI. The compendium is our short version of the patchy landscape. Um, you're going to find, I think, that you'll understand very quickly why we call this the patchy landscape of state English learner policies. Um, and with that, let me go to um, some of the 
notions of the process we went through. This has been a publication a long time in coming. Um, as you all might recall, uh, ESSA passed in 2015, toward the end of 2015. We are now in 2020, and it has taken those four, full four years, four and a half years almost, to look at the processes that are taking place across the states, what data is beginning to look like, what the state plans look like, and what trends we see overall. So we began the process before states even began writing their plans by identifying a framework of the key English learner requirements that are found in um, ESSA. Um, as you know, there was um, information from the department on what plans had to include. And so we looked at those plans, plus we looked at the legislation to look at what we were going to review as we looked at the plans. It was um, uh, not an, an easy undertaking since requirements for English learners are spread throughout the legislation. So we had to go to Title I and Title III and also begin looking at different sections within those areas. So once we had the framework ready, we began, as uh, state plans began to come in, uh, the 52 plans. And the 52 counts of 50 uh, states on the mainland and Hawaii and Alaska, in addition to the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico. Uh, looking at those state plans, again, in and of itself, uh, took some time, since there were two different deadlines for the states, as you'll recall. And in addition to that, we chose to wait until the plans were approved before we began looking at them because we know several of you who were submitting plans had a back and forth with the department through the approval process. So there was some delay there in looking at the plans and analyzing them until we knew we had an approved plan. The next step involved uh, verification of what we wrote. Since we were relying on a written document, Often we had to verify that by looking at other state documents where it was unclear what the state plan meant. And often uh, that included a phone call or a conversation with state education agency staff to verify that we were understanding correctly what the plan meant. Um, we often found, we began to find changes in the plans shortly after they were submitted and approved. Uh, and, and that was one of the um, characteristics of these plans we'll talk about in a little while. But soon after the plans were approved, many states began changing. In addition to that, many states had business rules that they developed that interpreted the plan differently than one might interpret it from just a reading of the, the state plan. So we had to look at that as we began to look at what was included in the plan. Finally, we got to what we wanted to do, which was begin to identify trends among the states. What were the states doing that was similar? What were they doing that was different? Why were they doing this? What was their rationale? Um, what were the different items uh, that a state submitted or described in response to what the federal law was requiring? Um, and this was one of the most interesting parts, it was the most interesting part of the process, and I think yields the most interesting uh, information that we'll have for you today. Uh, I also want to point out that there are other products that came out of this investigation. Uh, we have some state fact sheets that we've already developed. We've had convenings on 
this um, uh, on this uh, gathering of information from the states to begin looking at what the implications were. And you'll be seeing other publications come out of this rather large. If you haven't already looked up the, the publication itself, it's 151 pages long with a lot of detail and a lot of ex uh, appendices. So let me also give you some caveats that are rather important when we look at this publication. Uh, I want to go back to what I said earlier, evolving plans. Not only did plans start changing shortly after they were written, there, was also, there is also a process within the Department of Education for changing plans. And already we begin to see changes from what was written in this publication. Hopefully we tried to give you the most up-to-date, but there were changes taking place daily. Uh, we like to think of this uh, publication as a reference point in case your state has changed plans. Uh, what you'll find in, in the changes is they're often minute and have to do with just one aspect of the requirements, and so they're often hard to spot. Um, we tried um, to capture the changes since the first writing of this to um, shortly before its publication, so you'll see that in one of the appendices. Um, but this is going to continue to happen. So as you're looking at your own state in particular, you might find that there's some changes from what is written in here. Um, the best way to track that is to go to your state education agency website or to talk to personnel at your state education agency. Um, I talk here about lack of alignment and consistency, and that really is across the board in lots of different areas. Um, and you see it in, in different places. In the first place, um, there's lack of alignment within the plan of and consistency of where English learners are mentioned in the plan and what's required to be written. You don't find a whole section within the plan. It's difficult to go to the plan and say, here's the English learner section. You have to look at different aspects of the plan because most states use this plan very much as a, as a compliance document and just answered the questions that were asked not in the, in the order that they were asked uh, reflecting the legislation, not necessarily grouping all the English learner information together. So that's one way there's not a lot of alignment and consistency. Um, a lot of the lack of alignment and consistency across the states had to do with who approved these plans. Um, it, um, it seems that um, there were some plans and aspects of the plan that might be approved by one reader, but not approved for another state by another reader. So you're not going to find consistency across the states with regard to how a state responded to a particular requirement. And finally, you're going to find lack of alignment due to um, the writers of the plan. What we found was often states assign different parts of the plan to different writers, and so there sometimes are contradictions within the state plan, um, or um, if not outright contradictions in what is written, contradictions in the practice where one, one piece of the plan contradicts the outcomes or, or puts um, outcomes for another piece of the, of the plan uh, in some question, or some question in, in jeopardy, you might say. Uh, another caveat that's important is the technical nature of subgroup accountability. This is a complex process. The plans are nothing if they're not complex. 
Uh, I would say transparency is not their number one descriptor. <laughs> they are extremely complex. Um, when, uh, as um, a field, education has been looking at how we improve accountability and how we deal with accountability for many years. Uh, the nature of subgroup accountability is we look at English learners as a subgroup um, is such that there is great difficulty in figuring out how you include that accountability for a subgroup within a larger accountability plan and still sort of stay true to um, psychometric rules and statistical rules. So, for example, um, a good example of this is N-size. In states that perhaps had one district that has a large number of English learners and then small numbers scattered throughout the state, it was difficult for a state to figure out how they were going to include English learner accountability or English learner outcomes consistently across the board in their accountability system. Another example um, might uh, have to do with um, how um, goals were set for English learners versus other students. So just all the different things that had to be taken into account if you're looking at growth models, whether you're looking at growth models or some other kind of linear accountability system, uh, just the lack of knowledge about what we know about subgroup accountability, including when you talk about English learners, how uh, language development and academic development are tied together. All of this may for um, some difficulty in uh, writing the plans. I have to sort of tip my hat in some ways to the state education agencies. We had the opportunity to visit with many of them as they were developing their plans. And many of them, most of them tried to use actual data in setting these goals and setting um, the, the business rules and setting up their accountability systems. It was difficult to do. Finally, uh, another caveat that I think is important is the lack of guidance. States really were on their own, and that is reflected in the uh, variety among the plans. Uh, there was great flexibility. Uh, the department, as you may recall, had guidance that was then pulled back. So states were really very much on their own. So you see a different approach uh, across every state. I don't think pe people often ask us which are the best state plans. It's hard to say. Everybody responded in a different way depending on their situation, depending on their level of knowledge, and depending on the kind of English learner group they have in that state. Um, Implications of all this, uh, first, great deal of difficulty comparing EL progress across the states. It is difficult to say how English learners are doing by just looking at what's going to come out of each state because you're, you're talking about different kinds of populations, you're talking about different ways of measuring, uh, you're talking about uh, an inability to, to um, use one state process uh, as opposed to another state process. Uh, so these, um, a second implication is there were, uh, there are English learner subgroup changes that lead to fuzzy trends. What do we mean by that? So for example, the English learner subgroup that's counted for graduation rates is different from the English learner subgroup that is accounted, uh, that is included in academic um, outcomes uh, for overall accountability. That's just one difference. Um, and this leads to an inability to say here are the trends across the board, even within one state and certainly across um, many states. Uh, you're going to hear more about this from us later, so I'll stop talking about that. 
another implication is we really continue to need a better understanding, more research, more understanding about how language interacts with academic achievement. I won't say more than that because we've wrestled with this problem when, uh, in looking at English learners for a long time, but it's very evident as you look at these plans that we need more information. Uh, clearly, there is a need for collecting and understanding outcome data before the next reauthorization. It is difficult to say whether plans are good or not until we see what data they yield and how useful that data is. Uh, we are working along with states as much as we can to begin to understand what outcomes they're beginning to see and begin to look at what might need to be different for the next reauthorization. And finally, plans don't tell the story. I say this um, from a lot of perspectives. The first perspective is this, these plans are often seen within a state as a compliance document, and they, don't often, they often don't align with the state's plan of action for English learners or theory of action for them or a strategic plan they might have for English learners. And so going to these state plans um, won't tell a parent or an advocate really what's happening. They would have to go to many different places. Um, there also uh, are um, there are not place, there's not a plan, I think, that where you could tell, this is how my state is approaching English learners. Here, here's how it looks from beginning to end and what we're expecting. A person would have to look at all the different pieces and put together their own version of what was happening to English learners within the state. So given those global uh, statements I just make, I'd just like to turn this over to Julie Sugarman from MPI, who is going to delve into some of the specifics about the plant. Julie. Great. Thank you, Delia. And um, I'm uh, very honored to be here. Um, I was involved a little bit with the development of, of the paper, and um, Leslie Villegas and, and Delia really did an excellent job um, putting all of this information together um, so that uh, those of the rest of us could um, use it for thinking about uh, the broader implications. So I'm going to just talk about a very small slice, as Delia said. It's a, it's a very big document. Um, it's a very comprehensive look at provisions in ESSA that impact English learners. Um, so today I'm just going to highlight a few areas that demonstrate how variable state ESSA plans are. The areas we're going to look at uh, have to do with how progress toward English language proficiency is defined and tracked, and then we'll talk a little about how ELs fit into the overall accountability system. Before we get into some of the details of ESSA plans, I just want to give you a little overview of ESSA accountability. All of the states have learning standards in at least reading language arts, math, science, and English language proficiency, and administer statewide standardized assessments in those areas. As they developed their ESSA plans in 2017, states looked at past test performance to develop long-term goals to improve. For example, if only 30% of students were proficient in math in 2017, they might have set a goal for 75% of students to be proficient in math by 2027, and then set incremental goals for schools to meet along the way. The formal part of federal accountability under ESSA revolves around student outcome indicators in five areas, including academic achievement and English language proficiency. The state then adds up the results from all of their indicators and ranks schools in what's called annual meaningful differentiation between high-performing and low-performing schools. 
Those results are used to identify schools for comprehensive support and improvement if students across the board are struggling, or targeted support and improvement or additional TSI if a particular subgroup, such as English learners, is struggling. It's important to note that this is the general logic of the system, but each state is organized a little differently and may use different terms than these. We're going to come back to look at this system overall at the end, but right now we're going to just focus on state policies on the development of English language proficiency. Um, one of the new requirements of ESSA was for states to create uniform statewide criteria to determine who's an L and who isn't. All of the states created policies that follow a well-established two-step process that first first gathers information to identify students who speak a language other than English at home, and then test such students in English listening, speaking, reading, and writing. Even among states that use the same set of English language proficiency assessments, there's some variation in the cutoff scores that signal English proficiency. For example, among the 36 states in the WIDA consortium who use the Access for ELF test, the cutoff score to exit EL status varies between 4.0 and 5.0 on a scale of 1 to 6. So a student scoring 4.5 on access might be labeled as an EL in one state and not in another. And here I just want to reiterate what Dahlia said, which is that uh, while the report that MPI is releasing today reflects the 2017 plans, folks should check their state websites for updates to see if anything has changed. Um, since states have been um, looking at their um, English language proficiency policies and uh, trying to update them. Another thing that states set out in their ESSA plans is the maximum number of years it should take an L to become English proficient and exit L status. States base their timelines on research that suggests that it takes five to seven years for Ls to become proficient. Each state set a maximum timeline, but they also set lower timelines for some groups of Yales. So, for example, if you come in at an advanced level, you might be expected to exit in just one or two years. Several states also had slightly shorter timelines for students who start in U.S. schools in elementary school than students who start in middle or high school. Minnesota and Oregon allow an extra year for students with interrupted formal education to achieve proficiency, and Oregon has the same allowance for ELs with disabilities. I want to take a second here to point out a problem that Leslie and I dubbed the year zero problem, where we realized that some states were not counting a student's first year in school as a year that they were an EL. For example, New Jersey and New Mexico both said they had a five-year maximum timeline to proficiency. That's what was written in the text of their plan. But here we can see that New Jersey laid out their timeline with the headings initial year, second year, third year, fourth year, and fifth year, so five years altogether. But if you look at New Mexico, they have ELP level at entry, then one year later, two years later, and so on till five years later. What this chart shows is actually a six-year timeline. And part of the reason that this may have confused some states, and I don't mean to pick on New Mexico because a lot of other states did this as well, is that ELP assessments are typically given in the middle or even at the end of the year. So for a child in New Mexico, which is a WIDA state, she comes into kindergarten and gets her first ELP level, then one year later is actually the winter of her first grade year, and of course it follows that five years later is the winter of her fifth grade year. So even if she scored proficient in her fifth grade year, she would likely go down in the books of ha as having been an EL in fifth grade, 
which means she would have been labeled as an EL for a total of six years. So we've talked about how states lay out the criteria for each student to be classified as an EL or reclassified as proficient, and the maximum timeline each state set for how long reclassification should take. A third thing that states did in their ESSA plans was to create an indicator of progress toward English language proficiency. That's to say, if we expect students to e exit EL status in six years, these are the milestones that they should hit each year to be on track, and we expect a certain percentage of students to be on track every year. In order to understand how this indicator works, it's important to know how targets are set for each student. Unfortunately, 22 states didn't include this information in their ESSA plans. They told us that schools would get credit for the percent of students who made progress, but didn't tell us what making progress meant. And I just wanna issue a quick caution that I'm about to show you some state examples, which I'll go through pretty quickly and in a simplified way. So if you're interested, you can find more detail in MPI's report or on state websites. So first is New Jersey, whose straightforward model of progress we saw a minute ago. In order to be considered on track, students should gain one WIDA access level per year. Colorado also uses ELP levels, but they use a stepping stone approach that allows more time for students at upper levels of English proficiency to make progress. This is how language learning typically works. You make a lot of gains early, but then the amount of progress you make gradually slows down. In Colorado, you have one year to go from level one to level two, two years to go from level two to level three, and three years to get to level four, at which time you would exit. Like Colorado, Maryland assumes that students will make more progress early on. Their value table shows how much progress you're expected to make each year, depending on what level you started at. Maryland also allows you to bank some progress across years. So if you make a little more progress than the table requires one year and a little less the next year, you can apply the surplus from the previous year to the current year and get credit for making progress in both years. Wisconsin uses scale scores for their targets. So the first year you might score 110, obviously these are much bigger numbers than the uh, ELP levels, which are generally one to four or one to six, but a scale score might be something from 100 to 600, say. So you might score 110, then the next year 150, and so on until you hit whatever the state has set for your goal score. Your annual growth target in Wisconsin is basically the number of points you still need to get divided by the number of years you have left to get them. And this is recalculated every year based on how far you still need to go. And finally, um, left we have Ohio, which didn't indicate a maximum timeline to proficiency in its ESSA plan. On their scale, you exit EL status once you, have, once you score 16 to 20 points, depending on how you um, score on the components of the test. And this table shows that to get credit for making progress, you have to gain two points a year most years until you're at advanced proficiency when you have to gain one point a year. I should say that if you do the math on this one, it's possible to take nine to 11 years to exit EL status and still have gotten a making progress de designation every year. So I know I went through that really fast, but I just wanted you to appreciate the huge variation across states in how English language proficiency is defined and what progress students are expected to meet. In addition to the variation in student level targets I just talked about, there's also variation in how every student's progress figures into the ELP indicator for each school. For example, in some plans, 
students earn partial points depending on how much progress they make, whereas in others it's just a yes or no. You either hit the target or you didn't. Another issue was quite confusing in state plans because some states explicitly said that exiting EL status counted as making progress, but other states like California interpreted progress not to include exit, but less than half of the plans specified one way or the other, so it was hard for us to tell. And finally, some states calculate ELP indicators for grades K through 12, while others only do so for the grades in which students take English and math tests. All of this means that the states have made different assumptions about how quickly students should achieve English proficiency and on what trajectory. Because of these differences, it'll be very difficult to compare across states. For example, you couldn't say Maryland schools are more effective than Virginia schools if Maryland ELs made progress, made more progress, because the measures in the two states are totally different. States used what research we have on English language learning trajectories to come up with their ELP indicators, but we don't yet know which methods will be the best predictors of long-term success. We also don't know if some methods confer an advantage or a disadvantage on schools that have different EL population profiles, like more newcomers or more ELs in bilingual education programs. I just want to take the last couple minutes to return to the overall accountability model that I showed you at the beginning, because while the ELP indicator is an incredibly important way to understand how well ELs are doing, that one calculation fits into a larger picture. Looking at the plans has revealed concerns about numerous ways that EL performance can become hidden or not count at all. I just have a minute to call your attention to some of these, but they're discussed in depth in section four of the report. First, the reason that the long orange line on the diagram on your screen is dotted is that the long-term goals were mainly symbolic. States were not actually required to use them to develop their system of annual meaningful differentiation. So while a state may say it expects 80% of students in a school to make ELP targets, there might not actually be any consequences to not doing so unless your school ends up at the very bottom of the ranking and is identified for comprehensive or targeted support. A second issue is that the weight assigned to the ELP indicator varied across the states from 3% to 25%. So in states where it's low, poor performance on ELP might not have that much of an impact. Third, in some states, the ELP indicator is subsumed into another indicator, so it's calculated, but it might not be reported in a transparent way. Now, I haven't talked much about how the performance of the EL subgroup works outside of the ELP indicator, but a fourth concern is that most, most states only calculate averages for all students in their annual meaningful differentiation and don't include subgroup performance as a separate component. Finally, entire dissertations will be written on NSIZE, but suffice it to say that we've been hearing concern from folks in the field that because statistics tells us not to draw conclusions based on a very small number of scores, many schools with a small EL population don't have their EL subgroup scores figured into their overall school ranking at all because of the cutoff point that states have set for the minimum NSIZE or number of students that have to be in a group in order to be included in accountability. We don't yet know which of these things will be problems that we need to fix because some may just be appropriate ways that state approaches reflected their context. But for people who want to be sure that ELs are in the spotlight in school accountability systems, these are some things to pay attention to as data becomes available. Thank you, Julie. Well, you can see what we meant by complexity 
and what we meant by uh, it's difficult to compare these plans across the board. We were fortunate uh, as we were developing um, our work here on ESSA to work with a number of states and to work with a lot of local districts. But in addition to that, we were fortunate to work with some advocacy groups across many different states. One of the features of ESSA was that it required input from the community. And many advocacy groups who work with immigrant students and English learners took that very seriously. And uh, as a result, I think, made great improvements in their plans as they were being written and continue to be involved. So I, we are lucky to have Kim Sykes from the New York Immigration Coalition with us today as the Director of Education Policy. She's been steeped in this for a couple of years. Um, Kim, uh, tell us your perspective as an advocate, please. Thank you and so much, Dalia. Hey, Kim, I'm going to interrupt you. I'm so sorry. Sure, I want to make no sure people people uh, remember to <clears throat> submit their questions. I know this is really technical. I bet lots of you have lots of questions. We will do our best to answer them today. So please submit them um, uh, on the right-hand side in the chat, and we will keep them and be able to um, uh, answer after uh, we our presentation. So thank you, Kim. I'm sorry about that. No problem. Thank you so much, Dahlia. I'm really honored to be here today with you um, and with Julie and with everyone on the line. Uh, this is a big moment. Congratulations uh, to you all on putting together this uh, incredible paper. It really is a heroic thing to read through all these plans. And I'm thrilled to be here today to share my perspective with you, really from the field, uh, about what it was like to be in the middle of supporting a state in developing its plan and working hard to bring um, perspectives from the immigrant and EL-serving community into that process. So as Delia said, my name is Kim Sykes. I'm the Director of Education Policy at the New York Immigration Coalition. And I want to quickly give you just a snapshot of the NYIC, as we call ourselves. Um, we are a statewide coalition. We are a big tent. We have about 200 member organizations that are across New York State. And our work really centers around uniting our immigrants, uniting our members and our allies so that all New Yorkers can thrive. And we do that through policy and advocacy work. We also do that through capacity building for our member organizations, in particular, our grassroots uh, immigrant-led community-based organizations. Um, we are a multi-ethnic coalition. We're a multi-sector coalition. So it's really exciting um, when we have the opportunity um, that, to bring all those perspectives into critical policymaking, um, such as the development of a state's ESSA plan. So with that, I want to give you just um, a little bit of information on the a basic approach we took to uh, working on the state's ESSA plan. And then I really want to spend the bulk of my time talking about what that work really looked and felt like, because I think there's a lot um, of interesting dialogue amongst advocates, amongst um, state education agencies, LEAs, on um, how to really work together in partnership to come up with a, a richer outcome. And our focus, I think our original charge when we looked at um, this process and the substantial task of developing a plan for New York State, we really had to identify 
where do we want to focus our efforts? And the NYIC's um, education work for a long time had taken a multi-generational approach. Um, we uh, do our work rooted in conversations with our member organizations and family engagement is something that we just kept hearing about from everyone across the state again and again. So we really wanted to work on leveraging New York State's plan to support effective immigrant family engagement. So that was kind of a key priority that we honed in on. And we zeroed in on wanting to do, leverage the plan to do both capacity building work and also to create some um, harder, faster kind of stops in there to make sure that um, parents had real opportunities to be engaged at critical moments in the accountability process. So um, I'll kind of skip to the end of this story for a moment and tell you where we ended up. Um, but we were able to leverage our work to secure in writing a commitment from the state education um, department to really supporting districts and schools on particularly engaging um, immigrant, um, English learner, migrant families um, in general. They built into the plan general guidelines on effective um, practices and principles in engaging those families. And um, they committed to creating uh, a set of formal guidelines um, around those, uh, those um, policies and procedures. And very critically, we were able to get them um, to include in the plan a requirement that uh, stakeholders, including immigrant families, had to be included in the development of plans if districts um, had been identified, um, and that translation of notices regarding identification and report cards that were put out also would need to be translated into top languages um, in the district. So we felt those were very meaningful um, outcomes of this work. And we also focused um, on additional more technical uh, areas such as the um, which model would be used to measure progress, what the timeline to proficiency would be, um, end size, which Julie mentioned, um, and uh, the issue of disaggregating current versus former um, English learners. But I won't um, go too much into uh, into the content uh, any further, because I know we have the benefit of MPI's incredible paper to take us through that. What I instead want to focus on are really what we learned from participating in this work and being a real driver in the conversations. I think when I reflect back, there were a few really critical ingredients to being able to succeed in uh, achieving the outcomes that I just walked through. And Foundationally, we were very fortunate to have had an existing relationship with uh, folks in our state education department who worked on uh, English learner issues. And I think that's where, you know, being in the space and uh, having uh, those conversations um, pays, you know, big benefits when a monumental opportunity like this um, rolls around. So we were able to raise our hands and say, we would like to be, you know, we, we really would like to bring the voices of our communities into this process. But, you know, that's, that's not enough. Um, 
I will give our state education department a lot of credit because they uh, developed a wide range of uh, opportunities for um, folks to engage in. And we, um, with support from MPI, were able to really take advantage of all of those opportunities. So the foundation of it was uh, they, they built an SS think tank um, that met regularly, pretty much monthly up in Albany. So uh, we were, you know, you really need to have the capacity to go up and be able to participate in meetings um, on a regular basis, because I think that that is where you know, there's continuity of conversations. You're just hammering away at the work together month after month. And I think that leads to a real richness and a real ability to um, embed deeply in the work and really get into um, making sure that what you want to see as an outcome tracks through all the different iterations of um, the, you know, initial outline, the first draft, the final plan, et cetera. We were also um, able to be part of an English learner working group that was a part of the um, think tank, which also met monthly and had additional calls where we tackled, um, tackled the issues specific to English learners. And that was a very rich conversation. It was very effective in terms of strengthening our relationships with the state education department um, officials who work on uh, English learner issues, and that has paid dividends uh, through, you know, the years moving past the PANS development for sure. Um, we were also able to uh, network and strengthen ties with other groups that were working on English learner issues that hadn't been as closely connected to the work that we'd been doing in the past. So as a coalition, as folks always looking to build our power, that was very effective for us. Um, so those were very like technical administrative advocacy um, forums that we were engaged in. The state also did um, survey work. They held, um, you know, roundtables. They held formal opportunities for testimony to be delivered. And that's where we really engaged um, our members across the state. We provided them with background information, did one-on-one -on -one technical assistance to help answer questions about what was going on, get input from our members about how they wanted us to position remarks. And then we created some concrete tools that I think were really helpful that may be um, of use to others uh, working in other states, working on other issues. For the surveys, for example, we put together survey guidance that we sent out to our members when SED um, was asking us to weigh in on a particular set of questions. Um, through a survey, we supported our members in relaying the key priorities that we developed together through those vehicles with a cheat sheet of sorts <laughs> and some talking points. And we pursued a very similar strategy with testimony um, to support groups uh, in engaging. And I will say another absolutely foundational ingredient here was technical expertise. Obviously, you know, you've heard uh, Julie just talk about the complexity. Delia mentioned it here, and we were very, very fortunate to have um, access to uh, to MPI's um, deep, deep expertise uh, on those subjects when we were trying to figure out, well, what the heck is a value table? 
And without that, it is very difficult to engage in these types of conversations. It really helps put you on an equal footing with the um, policymakers in the room. And so I think going into a process like this, I think it's really important to uh, arm, arm yourself as someone speaking with the community with linkages and partnerships that can, can provide you with that type of support. Because otherwise it's very, very challenging to figure out what's really going, going on here. And I wanna give just a quick snapshot of successful approaches. I think we were able to really meet our members where they were and strategically focusing on family engagement because that is um, something that they were all familiar with. It was intuitive to them. And I think we have to look back also when these plans were being developed is, you know, right after the election was really when everything heated up. That was the same time period when our member groups, particularly the grassroots one, were we're under tremendous pressure to respond to this crisis environment that they were, that they and their communities um, uh, have been in since then. Um, and I think we also use the plans to plant seeds that we could come back to and really put hooks in there to um, give us a foundation that we could build on in coming years. So having them make commitments in the plan. Um, and we, we both worked closely with big groups and really tried to leverage our um, broad base of members. So with that of kind of what it was like from the inside, I'll just quickly revisit a few, visit a few other points. Um, after this was done, we really looked at a fundamental question. We have these long-term goals out there. Like we, we know that um, school, that an accountability system has been developed uh, to drive success for English learners, but do schools really have what they need to get there? And do they have the resources to do that? Do they have the capacity to do that? Um, and we came to the conclusion that no, um, there is, uh, and this you know doesn't uh, eliminate the need to support those students and meet accountability, but we really felt like there were additional resources that would be critical in um, helping schools do what they needed to do. Um, we also looked in coming years at what we could get done with some pretty substantial transitions within our um, SEA uh, across numerous levels of the agency. And we're always thinking about how we can build our power. So that really takes us to um, moving forward. After this work, we helped put together a new coalition. Um, called New York Affirms, and we are uh, a group of both um, immigrant advocates that are based in the community and also practitioners, and a fundamental focus of our work coming out of ESSA was really looking at um, the money that is owed uh, to school districts in New York State. Um, as a result of a long legal fight, the New York State developed a funding formula called Foundation Aid that is based on needs and has weightings um, for student groups uh, such as English learners, such as students living in poverty, students with special education. And we felt that the fact that our um, schools are owed $3.8 billion that was never delivered, even though um, it was mandated following um, the successful outcome of a lawsuit. 
um, that that money would, would be very, very important in helping um, districts meet their accountability requirements. So we engage the coalition to help fight for this funding. It is the middle of budget season right now in New York State, so we're working very hard um, on that issue and have really been mobilizing across the state. Um, and, you know, we really see that foundational funding as an answer both to um, helping districts with, you know, basic accountability requirements all the way to things like effective family engagement, just to bring it back to that for a moment. Um, language access, there's no dedicated funding stream specifically for that. If schools had, you know, were receiving the money that they were owed, then um, that would, that would definitely support addressing those issues. So we, um, we're in the midst of that now. And another thing I just wanna mention quickly in closing, connecting back to the um, family engagement, we also felt that bilingual educators were um, a critical part of that e equation and um, wanted to uh, dedicate some of New Yorker firm's capacity to looking at the bilingual teacher shortage here in New York State, and we're partnering um, with our, uh, with the policymakers at the State Education Department on uh, addressing that issue. So they're again, leveraging relationships that were strengthened through, um, through our work on the ESSA plan. And I'll just close out by saying, um, I work uh, very closely with a, a wonderful colleague, Andrea Ortiz, who is our manager of education policy here on K to 12 issues. I've put um, both of our email addresses here and I know those will be available afterwards. So thank you all so much. Um, it's been a pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you so much, Kim. Um, we have lots of questions coming in. If we don't get to them all, we'll answer you individually. But one very basic question uh, someone asked, if we have research on English language acquisition and we have a fair amount, why do you think the states ended up with such a different uh, definition of progress to proficiency. Julie, can you answer that? Sure, yeah, that's a great question. Um, there's a couple things. I think one, um, states are basing their English language proficiency definitions off of how students need to perform on their state English language arts and math tests. And so, of course, those vary from state to state. So, therefore, the definition of English language proficiency varies from state to state. Um, also, I think there's a balance between having a really complex calculation that takes all these variables into account and something that's easy enough for people to understand. So, um, you know, there, there could be a very, very long calculation with lots of um, variables based on the research, but it might be um, just uh, too overwhelming. Um, and I think the third thing is that states have different populations. So this may just be a reflection of what states saw in their data and they, they developed their um, definitions based on what they found. Thanks, Julie. Kim, I have a question for you. I, I think we've, we've shown how difficult is going to be to, to talk about nationwide trends and achievement with any consistency. So if you're a member of Congress, it may be difficult for you to start thinking about what might be different in, in when this law is reauthorized. I, I'm wondering, how would you suggest that advocacy groups start getting ready to take a position uh, on what needs to change and what needs to stay the same uh, in uh, 
Title III and Title I NESA? Oh, what a great question. Um, I think that for us on the ground, it always starts with uh, what, we're, what we're hearing, what we're seeing, what the realities are on the ground, and just, you know, really um, understanding the impact of um, the plans in our states um, as just a foundational thing. Um, I, I would say is a really good place to, to start um, and to, because I think we can come to those uh, broader conversations much more effectively when we have those stories of what's working and what isn't working. And I think using the opportunities really in our own states to build power around issues, right? So. One thing we're working on a lot right now is just really broadening our coalition. And it doesn't even have to be an ESSA or accountability-focused issue at the moment, right? But just to leverage moments to build power, like to bring people into the fold, so to speak, so that you've got those, um, you know, lists of people who can engage, who can sign on to that letter when it's time for the reauthorization and have some background and facility with education issues overall so that they're, they're primed and ready to go um, when, the, when the moment happens and we've, um, we're able to speak with a loud voice when it really counts. We have a, thank you very much, Kim. We, we have um, a question here about state policy spillovers. I think the question is really, are there clusters of states that, that interpret uh, the law and its implementation and, and therefore their plans very similarly. And, and the, the person who asked the question said maybe because they have the same textbooks or something. I, I guess my answer to that would be kind of. You cannot find uh, two states that have the very same plan when it comes to English learners or anything else. But you can find clusters around certain requirements. And the easiest thing for me to do would be to point you to the publication, because as we analyze how states um, respond, you're going to see in our charts and in our explanations that there are clusters of states that did things the same way, but there's really no rhyme or reason. I mean, one pattern you might see is among the states that use WIDA as an assessment, so there's a lot of similarities there, but not really you couldn't say that they're all the same at all. There are many, many differences there. So the variability is across the board. And as I said, I would recommend that you look at, at some of the charts and tables in the publication and give you a sense of where things are the same and where they're very different. Um, Julie, we have a lot of questions about former English learners and their inclusion in calculations and in, in looking at outcomes and that sort of thing. Can you want to address that? Yeah, absolutely. This is um, another issue having to do with um, how ELs fit into the whole system, and um, this is a this is a really tricky question. Um, ESSA increased the uh, amount of time that states can include former English learners. So um, you're in the English learner subgroup until you exit, and then of course um, you uh, at, at that point is generally when you're able to do well on the on the test. So it's sort of a revolving door. Um, with the, the students who are able to perform um, at the highest levels. 
leaving the subgroup. So uh, the compromise was to include um, students who have recently exited the subgroup. Uh, it used to be two years, now ESSA allows up to four years. Um, and so states can include those students um, in their um, uh, in their calculations of indicators for academic achievement. Now, the difficulty is that you might also really want to know just how are the current English learners doing, um, because it can look very different when you add four years of uh, former English learners in there. So um, this is really a, an interesting question. I think that um, there, you know, some of the, the nuance was lost when we lost, when the regulations were rescinded because there was some information in there. I think it was, um, would have been helpful to states in terms of guidance. But, um, you know, I think that it's important for states to look bo at both groups, look at English learners only, and look at the former English learners as well, because you really do want to see how, the, how students do in the long run. That's what's important. So we know that current English learners are less likely to just by definition score proficient on English language arts and math. Um, but we want to make sure that once they become former English learners that they are able to and they generally do score as well or better than their never English peers. So um, it's really important to um, look at the whole group and hopefully uh, states will add those items to their dashboards as they're able to do that. Thanks. We have a question here about what happens when English learners move from one state to another. The question is, do other states use identification from the previous state or are students tested again for initial identification? Again, a fuzzy answer is it depends because this is really up to state policy. So there's no consistency across the nation. It depends on what a state's policy is about assessment and when they assess and that sort of thing. Um, we have another question about um, an advocacy question, Kim. Um, can you give people an idea of what steps you would take and maybe recommend other states take if they feel, for example, their ELP indicator is set too low or they see something that they think is critical right now? What, what steps would you take and recommend that they take? I think the first, um, the first step would be to ask for um, ask for more data about to understand what's happening to really look at how it's being used and how um, you know who's being captured who's not being captured and dig into that and really try to open up a conversation with your SEA if that's something that they're amenable to doing um, that may be something depending on um, the expertise of the organization where it, it may be helpful to look for partnerships with other um, organizations who can support you in doing that. Um, but I, I think that um, having an understanding of how it's playing out um, with the data is always useful. If you feel you can tell an anecdotal story just um, from what's happening at your school and concerns that, um, you know, your communities are not being well served uh, and, but they're not being identified. Uh, I think you could also go that route if that feels a little bit more germane to you. Thanks. We have a question here about uh, how English learners may count. And, uh, in the different aspects of accountability. The, the example is, for, exa for example, one EL may count for English learner for special education designation as a Latino, as low SES. Um, 
this fact lends itself, the, the questioner says, to identifying specific students who are bringing down the data of the school. What do we do about that? Uh, I think you can see that in um, a number of ways. Um, one way to look at it is not bringing down, but giving you an accurate picture of the complexities that kids bring to school with them, and therefore the challenges that schools are presented. So it, it is likely that they might have low scores, that they have a number of students who, who face uh, a number of challenges, whether it's a disability or poverty or something that complicates the fact that they're English learners. Uh, another way to look at it might be how a state sets up its accountability systems and how they count these students. Uh, there are states that, that set up these supergroups to try and account for that. I won't even go into the technicality of that, but you can read about that. So um, again, as with most of the answers to your questions today, there is no black and white. There are a lot of gray areas in looking at um, the questions around these plans and also um, uh, how we're going to interpret outcomes that, that come from this. Good question. Okay, we have another question here I'm looking at. Um, you see here, well, the question is about what the status is of federal grants. Julie, do you want to respond to this? Our, um, that are needed for addressing some of the areas of concern that emerge from this presentation. What can we expect as support from the federal government to in incentivize more robust research around these areas? Yeah, that's a great question. And I know that um, the Office of English Language Acquisition um, has these uh, national professional development grants that are supporting teacher professional development. Um, that's one of their really big efforts. Um, and then there's a lot of, um, uh, from other areas of the government, there are other um, innovation grants and um, scale-up grants and that sort of thing that can look at um, English learners. But I wanted to take the opportunity of this um, question to say that um, the ESSA plan it comes from the federal government, and um, the federal government uh, is there to support states in um, creating good plans and then the states um, uh, help districts and schools implement them. Um, but for the most part, English learner education really is the responsibility of states and localities. So um, there is, um, you know, $787 million in Title III this year, which is an increase from $737 million, which is amazing and we're really glad to see that. But that's just a piece and that's really just to enhance the work that states are doing. So um, it's a little confusing, but the, um, the, the federal government often says, here are the rules, but really what they're saying is these are the things that the states are responsible for, not things that the federal government. So this is, this is not um, you know, replying directly to uh, the person, to her question, but I just you know, was glad to have a moment to um, say that um, there's a really complicated interplay of federal, state, and local when it comes to accountability. And so um, it's, it's really uh, why we see such a wide variety of responses, because it really is, for the most part, up to states. Um, they really play the biggest part in our education system uh, in terms of what, they, um, you know, what, what the rules are and how to implement them. I think we have time for one more question, Kim, and I'm gonna give that to you. Uh, I think it's a great question. How can educators become advocates for change that's necessary for English learners in policy? 
Oh, that's a great one. Um, I think that really sharing, coming into spaces, um, coalitions where uh, groups are really tackling um, frontline issues and sharing their experiences on the ground, their expertise is really important. Um, I think we're the most powerful when we have the voices of youth um, and parents and practitioners uh, informing the policy uh, changes that we put forward. Um, and I, I, I just have seen the benefits of that play out again and again. And I think there's so much that educators do on an everyday basis to be advocates for their um, students um, and parents within their own schools. So I just want to lift that up and say thank you um, to all of you who are out there doing that every day because that is very meaningful work. Thanks very much. That's a good way to close. Thank you very much. Uh, and in closing, I would like to acknowledge the work of Leslie Villegas. Leslie is no longer here at MPI. She's gone on to Scotland, of all things. But she did uh, a great deal of work on this and devoted a lot of her time here to this publication. So a shout out to her. Uh, we look forward to answering the questions we didn't get to individually. And we look forward to hearing your comments as you dig into this publication. It is a meaty publication. That's one way of describing it. And we would love to hear your comments not only with regard to questions you might have about it, but comments about what you're seeing in your state as these plans are being implemented. Thank you very much for joining us today. And we look forward to being in touch with you all on topics that spring from this publication.